It was the fall of 2010, and I was in my first class, and it was the first session, and we were doing introductions in the class, uh, and it actually was called the Introduction to Biblical Counseling, starting the program there at the Master's University. And uh, I was sitting in the front, so I introduced myself to the class. And sitting behind me, when it got uh, behind me, all of a sudden I heard someone introduce themselves as having gone to Moody Bible College uh, and that they had lived in the married housing there and actually were the resident directors over the married housing. So I, I swung around and I looked and I saw Jeff and Kristen, because the wives were allowed to attend the class to audit all classes, I swung around because my daughter, Kendall, and her husband, Josh, had lived in the married housing at Moody Bible. And lo and behold, they were on his floor. Uh, and so they knew my oldest daughter and her husband. Uh, and so we, we started a relationship 11 years ago, uh, at starting in that class. Uh, and Jeff did something that was actually rather unusual. Uh, he crammed the two-year program into seven years. <laughs> and uh, what was amazing about that is I crammed it into five, uh, is uh, he actually got his master's in biblical counseling and his master of divinity at the same time. That's a lot of work. And so... Uh, we're excited to have him here because after graduating with his MDiv and uh, Master's in Biblical Counseling, he went on to become certified with uh, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, of which uh, Thomas and I are a part. Uh, he then assumed the role of being uh, the supervisor or the head of the graduate program there in biblical counseling at the Master's University. And what's exciting as to why we've invited him here is he's getting ready to go to be a part of the Master's Academy Institute in Berlin, where he will actually be serving in what he's being prepared for. He actually will be training the first set uh, in biblical counseling there at that institute but they actually changed his job description. They now want him to head up the Master of Divinity program there in Berlin. And so uh, he shared a lot of that, uh, what the ministry will be there. He'll also be uh, one of the elders and teaching pastors in a church plant outside the city of Berlin. And as he mentioned uh, this morning, uh, even though Germany is where the Reformation occurred, where we think of Martin Luther, uh, today, only 3% of Germans are evangelical Christians. Technically, by that definition, they're in non-Christian country. That's where it's become. And so he and his wife, Kristen, uh, will be going there. And as you saw in the picture in the bulletin, their precious son, uh, Dietrich, Silas, Micaiah and Josiah. Uh, I'm not sure which one will be the center, forward, or guards. Uh, we'll see. 
uh, in the future as they put together that team. But going to Germany, they have to play soccer, right? So we'll, we'll see where all that goes. And so this morning, we've asked uh, Jeff and Kristen as they prepare to go on the mission field, hopefully this summer, to Germany to come share with us uh, this morning their ministry and then share from the Word today his passion for what does the Word have to say about discipleship or customized discipleship, we call it, biblical counseling. So would you welcome Jeff Miller. Good morning. It really is a great joy and a privilege to be here this morning. And uh, I, I feel a deep kindred spirit with uh, Pastor Bruce and uh, definitely um, just been encouraged with every conversation God has allowed us to have together over the years uh, as he visited Shepherd's Conference. Um, each time we've been able to uh, grab a few minutes together. Uh, it has been an absolute joy to um, to meet with him, talk about ministry, talk about what God's doing here at the church, talk about what God's doing in his life, and in biblical counseling. We always <laughs> seem to focus our, our time on biblical counseling, so we have a, a like-minded passion, like-minded desire for ministry and so um, we're very much um, on the same lines with, with ministry and church. Well, um, so we are blessed to be here as a family. I am blessed to open God's word with you this morning. So if you will, uh, take your Bibles over to Psalm chapter 19. We will, um, we will start there. Psalm chapter 19. Let me go ahead and read, uh, read the chapter first so we can start wrapping our minds around this text, this scripture this morning. Uh, Psalm chapter 19 reads, the choir director, Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice are not heard. Their voice goes out through the, through the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving, the, leaving his chamber, and like the strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let my word, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's open with a, a word of prayer so we can focus our hearts on this passage today. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to look at your word and to be encouraged to uh, understand our design for worship, our, our design for our soul to be drawn to you and to rightly worship you. Uh, we ask this, uh, this hour to honor you, to glorify you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it would be an ultimate waste of any of us if we were to get to the end of our lifespan and and be devoid uh, of anything that honors God, truly designed to, to be living our life out what we are truly designed to do, and that is to worship, worship the one true and living God. More importantly, if we were to find ourselves at the end of our life worshiping a lesser or an inferior Someone or something, an image that is not the one true and living God. It would be like a lion living their life out in the Everglades. Or a duck in the desert. Or a Clydesdale being put on the racetrack. Or a Shetland pony hooked up to a plow. You don't know what I'm talking about, but as a farm kid in Ohio, I know a little bit about farm animals. Uh, what about a Pinto for the racetrack? A Pinto car. No, that doesn't work. It's not what it's designed for. Do you know, do you know what you were designed to do? Do you know the design of your soul? Well, this morning, I am hoping that this passage, Psalm 19, will help us think on that. Let me start with this. Uh, there were two British comedians recently, just a few years back, launched the first ever atheistic church in London. Now, uh, let, me, let me clarify. They are comedians. I'm not telling a joke. This is for real. They launched an atheistic church in London, and they had great support. About 300 people joined them. They had a, they had a great launch. And now several years later, this atheistic church movement, which is called Sunday Assemblies, is now in over 35 countries. 
And there's, there's at least one here. Actually, in my home state in Ohio, near Cleveland, there's a Sunday Assemblies. And they have, uh, they have started this uh, Sunday Assemblies in opposition of what? In opposition of our Christian services on Sunday mornings. One of their lines that they can be quoted of is that the Christians do not own Sunday mornings. So they're trying to take Sunday mornings back and promote atheism. Well, they develop community just like we love to develop community because we know we're designed to be in community with one another, God's church, the body of Christ. They also want to develop community. And in their services, they actually sing songs, although they're not worship songs. They're often secular songs that might um, clarify that there is no God or worship what you feel might be right to you, relevant truth type of ideologies. There are also uh, billboards. If you've been to Chicago, London, New York, different larger cities that promote the idea that there is no God. One of the billboards, or actually a banner on a bus in London, said this, uh, there's probably no God. Now, stop worrying and enjoy life. What are they trying to get at? They think there is a, if there is a God, or the thought of God, would keep us from doing what we want to do, what we would enjoy to do in life. Clearly, they are missing the point that they've been designed to live for. I bring this up with the idea of atheism as a theoretical atheist, but I want to posit to you that there is a more dangerous more dangerous atheist than a theoretical atheist. I just talked about a theoretical atheist. I would posit to you that there's a more dangerous atheist than a theoretical atheist, and that would be a functional atheist. Functional atheists would maybe be even found in our midst, maybe in our circles, where they might even say, I believe in the work of Christ. I believe what God has done. I believe what God has done on my behalf. I believe even what the Bible teaches. But they don't live like God exists. They, don't, they might profess it with their mouth, but not live it in their lives as if God exists. One writer said it this way, the most dangerous type of atheism is not the theoretical atheist. But practical atheism, that's the most dangerous type. And the world, even the church, is filled with people that pay lip service to God, not life service. There is always a danger that we will make it appear externally that we believe in God. But internally we don't. We say with our mouths that we believe in him, but we live our lives like he never existed. Such an example might be this one. I'll read you a quote, but he's not, this person was not, is not a Christian. But I think he makes my point very clearly because this is latent with worship terminology. Let me give you the quote and then I'll give you the name of who said this. 
the basketball player, and it was in his uh, Hall of Fame speech that he said these words when he was introduced into the Hall of Fame of basketball. The, The game of basketball has been everything to me, my refuge, my place. I've always gone when I needed to find comfort and peace. It's been a source of intense pain and a source of most intense feelings of joy and satisfaction, says Michael Jordan in his Hall of Fame speech. You see, basketball and his success, all that he has gained, has been everything that has meant anything in his life and has become what he then worships, what his soul yearns for, what his soul finds satisfaction in. Let me tell you, he is blinded by his own desires. He is blinded because he doesn't know what he has been truly created to do at the soul level, at the heart level. In this text today, we're going to see, I hope you see it with me, that we have been created and designed to worship God how he has called us to worship him, not on our terms, but on his in accordance with scripture. This is really, truly what our soul will find rest and refreshment in. Are you looking for rest and refreshment in your soul today? I pray that the Lord would use this uh, passage today to minister to you. If you care about titles of sermons, I've titled this The Centrality of God's Word in Missions, subtitled Designed to Worship. I know it's a long title, but really it's getting at the point of why do we exist? We exist and are designed to worship. In this psalm today, God declares he is worthy on three levels. And we'll look at these three levels. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll look at them one by one. He gives us three reasons from this text to worship him this morning. Number one is, as creator, he transcends the universe. That's reason number one, because he is above all creation. He transcends the universe. And we'll see that in verses one to six. Secondly, it's because he is his transforming word, his sufficient word. And we'll see this in verses seven to nine. And then thirdly, he is worthy of our worship because he transfers souls. What I mean by this, and you'll see it hopefully with me, is that he is transforming our worship or transferring our worship uh, from false worship to true worship or from darkness to light. We'll see this in verses 10 through 14, the end of the chapter. So point number one, he is worthy because he is the creator of the universe. He transcends the universe Of course, it does our soul good to gain perspective under the stars, right? So verse 1, the the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim his handiwork. When's the last time that you've gone out and gawked at the stars, looked up at the night sky, and just been in awe of the universe? You know, we should do this more often. It, uh, and, and you know, I'm sure you're aware of this, but our Milky Way galaxy is a very large galaxy. It's a 120 light years across. Um, 
And I know we have a hard time understanding, actually it's, sorry, I misquoted, 120,000 light years across in diameter. So we lose perspective really fast when we don't have a way to compare that number in thinking on the, the, the actual grandeur of our, of our galaxy. That's just our galaxy. It's been said that there are over 170 billion other galaxies. And our galaxy isn't the biggest galaxy. There are bigger galaxies. Our galaxy is said to have 400 billion stars. There are others that are much larger than that. Before I lose you more in numbers, I'm a numbers guy, my background engineering, but I won't, I won't delve more into numbers. It's, it's just uh, clear to know that God has created the vastness of the universe for us to, to gawk at the universe. But it's not to stop there. We're not to just gawk and be in awe. What's the purpose? So that we might worship him. So that we might be drawn to worship him. Should we be amazed at God's great power and his vastness in creation? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we don't draw that amazement and that uh, awe to a level of worship in our heart, we're missing the point. And in fact, if you do any research at all on our galaxy, you'll know that we have been placed precisely, our planet has been placed precisely in this galaxy so that we have a better view. If we were placed in any other position in the galaxy, we wouldn't be able to enjoy the view of the stars that we do. So God has specifically placed us in the position that we are so that we can worship him even more. So this is known uh, from a theological standpoint as general revelation. This first part of the psalm, first part of Psalm 19, is general revelation. It is a general proclamation that God exists. A God exists. This is God proclaiming himself to those who don't believe in him or don't think there is a God. This is God saying, I do exist. There's no other way this can come to fruition other than a God creating the universe. And so we know this as general revelation. God is generally revealing himself. Psalm 10 says, there is a, you are a fool not to believe in God. Verse 4 says, in the pride of his face and wicked, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Similarly, in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they, are abominable, they, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. And of course, you probably thought along with me, Romans 1 declares that they have no excuse. In fact, let me read that section just briefly, you don't need to turn there. Romans 1, 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For this invi his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. They are without excuse. So we clearly know those who don't believe in God, the atheists who started this Sunday assembly movement, 
They have no excuse. Even though they meet and throughout their services, they mock God, intentionally mock those who believe in God. There's no room for any of these to justify their rebellion against God. There is no excuse. God says in Romans, uh, through Romans uh, chapter 1, there is no excuse uh, for them to rebel against God and the truth found simply in creation in the universe. So that's the purpose of general revelation. It's not just so that we gawk at, revel- at, at, at creation. So if you went to the Grand Canyon or other national parks and gawked at God's creation, this, the purpose of general revelation is to draw us to worship the creator. That's the whole purpose of general revelation. And so as, as that would unfold, As creator, then he demands our worship. He has done all this, created all this vastness, and now uh, in return, he would expect that we would in return worship him because of his uh, sovereign grandeur, his power. Um, And so you know, along with me, that the greatest worldly wisdom that would be in opposition of this would be what? What is taught all throughout our schools? It would be the doctrine of evolution, right? That everything was developed and and came into existence by a big bang. Well, sorry to break the news, there was no big bang. God created it all. The uh, Latin term is ex nihilio. He created it out of nothing. Uh, He spoke it into existence. We know uh, a gal that claims herself to be, uh, self, self-claims to be a, an agnostic, one who doesn't believe there might be a God, um, doesn't believe, uh, but she, she recognizes the fact that when she goes to a mountaintop or up on a high view vantage point and gawks at the stars, she says this is when she feels the most spiritual in her life. In fact, uh, she, she says... Um, I feel closer to, closer to God than anywhere else, but she doesn't believe that God exists. I, I feel more spiritual than any other time. Let me tell you, it's empty. What she is experiencing is simply a feeling. It doesn't, it doesn't draw her in a right way, according to Scripture, to worship God. She is missing the whole point of the creation, of the universe of gawking at God's creation. And so, simply put, the universe proclaims uh, his splendor and his majesty, therefore we must as well. We must as well by worshiping, returning in worship to the God of the universe, to the God of the Bible. So we know that we uh, should worship him, or he demands or wants us to worship him because he is creator of the universe. Uh, We could spend our whole time on this first section uh, this morning, but the main section of this psalm is actually the second point here, and this is where we're getting to now, this second point. Um, So he not only wants to transform our worship by revealing himself as creator of the universe, as he transcends the universe, but now, secondly, he is worthy of our worship because he, because of his transforming truth, 
his transforming word and therefore the sufficiency of the word this is really what this psalm is getting at uh, and let me just say we are going from now general revelation to what theologians uh, refer to as special or specific revelation which is talking about god's word and how god communicates to us that's known as special revelation or specific revelation this psalm is really a chiastic structure, and what I mean by that, I'm going to give this hand motion because it helps you visualize. A chiastic structure is a Hebrew poem, poetic structure, that uh, just points us to the middle of the structure as being the most important segment of that poem or that structure, and we are now entering into the middle section starting in verse 7. So this... Um, this section of the psalm is verse 7 to verse 9, and we'll uh, read it in just a second. But the chiastic structure is formatted, formatted with the first verse, verse 1, uh, as creation's proclamation. And then verse 14 would match that, the psalmist's proclamation. And then verses 2 to 6 would be the universal word. And verses 10 to 13 would be the private word. And then verses 7 to 9, which is our section now, is the preeminence of God's word. So we'll see in this section the importance that God puts on his own word by the way he describes the word of God. Right, so let's read cha uh, chapter 19, verses 7, 8, and 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I don't need to tell you that uh, this, but... Why do so many of our churches, people in the church, take wisdom from the world if God declares his word to do what I just read, what the Bible just told us? If the word of God does what this section of scripture tells us, then why do we look anywhere else? I think that's the greatest challenge for all of us is not to give in, not to give yourself to the wisdom of this world, but to assess your own soul, assess your own thought life, assess your own worship, assess your own desires and motives of life according to what Scripture gives us, not according to what the world gives us. Too often, I... I find myself in conversation with someone who is pursuing God, pursuing worshiping God on their own standards, on their own approach, on their own way that makes them feel spiritual, right? Just like I mentioned about the agnostic gal who goes to the mountaintop because she feels a spiritual high, and she calls that a spiritual experience maybe, but has nothing to do with worshiping God, doesn't desire to worship God not what we're designed we're designed to worship god the pinnacle act of our soul is to worship god aw tozer actually says the most important thing about you 
is that you is is your thought about God, what you think about God. That's the most important thing about us. How do we think about and pursue and worship God? Once I had a missionary kid and I knew his parents well. I know his parents well. Preach the gospel. They know scripture in and out. He knows scripture in and out. This missionary kid comes to me at the college level. He knows uh, he has been in the church all his life. Comes to me and he said, God has not given me enough faith to believe. Therefore, essentially what he is saying, it's God's fault that I am not a believer. That I don't believe that there's a God or that he hasn't saved me. You tell me, is that, is that how God would capitulate himself to our standard of salvation? I don't believe so. I believe God has given us clarity in his special revelation, in his word, on how we are to be saved initially, come to know him as Lord and Savior, and then how we are to be sanctified, how we are to live the rest of our life, in order to honor and worship him. Scripture calls us to pursue God as he requires us to pursue him, not as we deem is right. That's our postmodern thought, that it would be uh, whatever feels right to us is how we pursue God and how we feel spiritual, right? That's our postmodern thought. It's not from Scripture. Scripture gives us clarity on who God is and how we are to worship him. One of the aberrant doctrines that have flown through the church in recent decades is let go and let God. One of, one of the ways that people have de determined to worship God is just say, oh, God is sovereign. I don't need to do anything. I can just lay back and let God, let God do what he does and have no part in anything personal in my life in, in disciplines or pursuing God or worshiping God. I need to do nothing but just let go and let God. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are to be holy and be holy like Christ and pursue Christ-likeness. In fact, he gives a clear model of sanctification, meaning how to be more like Christ. He wouldn't give us a clear model of sanctification if we weren't to pursue him in that way. Well, here in this section, the psalmist discusses God's word. The word gives us his plan of salvation, like I mentioned, and sanctification. So why, why, does David, why does David give us six descriptives here of the law in this section? Six descriptives. Look again with me in these three verses. He says, he, he, he calls the law, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, commandment of the Lord, fear of the Lord and rules of the Lord. Then following these descriptives, David gives us uh, descriptive words of, of, uh, of God for each term. Ultimately, there is a descriptive given. Uh, this is, these are descriptives given of the author himself. Think of it this way. God has authored this, this word, his, the, the Bible, the scripture, are authored ultimately by God himself. And he is saying this about his word, therefore it must be true about the author who is penning this word. 
So he is uh, perfect, verse 7, reviving the soul. So God, as the author of this word, the Bible, revives the soul. Does your spirit, does your soul feel like it is suffocating this morning? I know when God humbled me and brought me to himself, I was suffocating and I was looking within and could not find, did not know the true and living God, the one who created me. God is the only one who can revive your soul. God, not psychology, not any other worldly wisdom. God is the one. He is perfect. God's word is perfect, which means uh, we didn't need, we don't need anything else outside of Christ. Christ is exactly what we need, nothing more, nothing less. The term here to revive is actually to invert. So are you downcast, as David would say, or the psalmist, sorry, the psalmist would say in Psalm 42, are you downcast? Uh, hope in God, worship God. God is the one who inverts your soul so that you can worship him. Turn to God that he might be glorified with your life. Secondly, the law of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. Do you need wisdom this morning for life circumstances? Do you need wisdom to know how to come to God? Do you need to know God? Any wisdom on any level starts with knowing God, Proverbs says. We need to come to God for wisdom. Do you need wisdom? Come to God this morning. Would you like to be wise as Solomon? Solomon pursued God. Solomon is said in the Bible to be the wisest man that ever walked the planet. Pursue God for wisdom. Do you need wisdom for life circumstances in, at any level this morning? Pursue God. God can make you wise as to how to live life and how to respond to the most difficult circumstances that are presented to you. Simpletons. Simpletons. Do you know any simpletons? Guide them to the word of God. Guide them to understand what God would have for them in the word of God. So that they might discern what is right and, and good in honoring God. Uh, living their life for Christ. Right. So we know that the law is right, rejoicing the heart. When our soul is downcast, depressed, dissatisfied, unhappy, God is ready to rejoice your hearts. God is ready to rejoice, revive and rejoice your hearts. There is hope in Christ. The hope and encouragement that you receive at salvation will give you purpose for life. Uh, there is no other reason that you are created than to worship God and God alone. Whatever we do day in and day out should reflect that worship. God is the only one who can truly cause the soul to rejoice. But we must worship, we must pursue him according to his word. Then uh, we also see that it is pure, enlightening the eyes. If the eyes are darkened, the body will suffer. Your body will reflect what your eyes are pursuing. What your eyes see, your physical body will reflect that. The body will also suffer. In other words, should the eyes desire to accomplish evil, 
If your eyes are always set, your, your, your desires and your motives of your heart always set to do evil, then your body will reflect that. If you do not live to honor Christ with everything you do, then your body will reflect that in some way, shape, or form. We know that our spiritual, spiritual uh, state will often have physical ramifications. If we, have, we are wrought with worry and anxiety, a common physical response of the body is to create ulcers or different things that, um, that, our, that our physical body will manifest. We know this. I recently saw an interview of two adult twins in Colorado dealing with significant issues of OCD, as deemed by psychologists, where they actually thought they needed to take 10-hour showers to get clean. 10 hours of showering to get clean. Well, this is a way that their eyes were dimmed in their sin or false worship, where they were dealing with something at the soul level that God, I believe, God could have cleansed for them. We know that being in Christ, we have, have been redeemed and reconciled and uh, we have a new life uh, being refreshed in Christ. Uh, that would have resolved the issue of feeling dirty. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a moment. But clean, true, and righteous. So God is enduring forever. It will be there forever, giving us exhortation and guidance, calling us to return to worship him. It's all about our worship. It's all about our desire. What motivates us in life? What, what motivates you in life? In short, God's word is pure. It has no errors. It is sure. It does not mislead you. There are so many psychologies out there that actually contradict themselves and will mislead you. It is right, the remedy. It is the right remedy for the heart, rejoicing the heart. It is pure. It does not leave you dirty, disdained, or discouraged, but it is clean, righteous, and true, cleansing us and justifying us before the judge of the universe himself. This is the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. And I know you are well-versed in sufficiency of Scripture because I know your pastors, and they are a champion of sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture is dealing with all things that pertain to life and godliness. The scriptures give us this and actually proclaim that, they, that the scripture gives us this in 2 Peter 1.3. We also know from Hebrews 4 that the scripture says of itself that it is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here we go. Motives for life. Desire for life. The Word of God can delineate exactly where you are and where you should be in right worship of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, for training in righteousness. And don't forget verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God doesn't only save us, 
but God then stays with us and teaches us, trains us, corrects us for every good work that would honor him. That's the whole point. That's the sufficiency of Scripture, that God stays with us and actually works his word through us for his good purposes in our life. And this goes back to the Great Commission, right? You might be thinking about Matthew 18, or sorry, 28, verses 19 and 20, where it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Then in verse 20 it says, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So we are to make disciples and teach them the whole word of God, all that has been commanded. So don't be short-sighted in thinking, well, God can save me, but he doesn't have any inclination what it's like to live out this life and the temptations I deal with and the frustrations and the desires I'm dealing with. No, he is with us throughout our sanctification, throughout the rest of our days as we grow to be more like Christ. He will actually do the work in us, Philippians 1.6 says, that he will make us more like Christ. He will never leave us nor forsake us. In other words, we are not to latch onto the world's wisdom again. Here we are back to, don't give yourself over to the ways of the world, the wisdom of the world, specifically secular psychology. Just a little side note, in the early 1900s, Sigmund Freud launched psychology on Easter Sunday in direct opposition of the church. He was a God-hating Jew who wanted a system of dealing with life circumstances that was completely devoid of God. And so he launched his practice on Easter Sunday. Ironically as well, you might note that the actual term for psychology means study of the soul. But the 250 plus variations of psychology available to us today would teach that you have no soul. We are simply a chemical imbalance, mainly, or any issue that you have can be corrected by behaviorism corrections. So they deal with symptoms and they give you uh, medications to correct your imbalance, right? Not dealing with the soul whatsoever. But the Bible is the text for the soul. The Bible is all about the soul. Not only salvation, but then giving us principles and precepts to live the rest of our life by in right response to God and worshiping God correctly. The term soul itself is actually given to us over a thousand times. Sorry, 850 times. So 750 times in the Old Testament, nephesh. The New Testament term is psuche in Greek, and that's over a hundred times. So even by 850 times, you can tell that the Bible has a lot to say about the soul. If you just took uh, each of those verses one at a time, you could spend 850 days. How many years is that? Almost three years. Two and a half years, maybe. A verse a day on the soul. What does the Bible teach about the soul? How should we live? How would God want you to live at your soul heart level? Well, back to our passage here. The Bible talks about not only, well, we can see in Hebrews, we just saw in Hebrews 4, 
uh, that it really is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. James also talks about passions that war within us, right? James 4, you're familiar with that passage. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Those desires are driving us. How do we correct those desires? Well, our passage today, chapter 19 in Psalms, also talks about motivations and desires of the heart. Verse 9 has fear listed. Verse 10, desires. Verse 11, 12, and 13, warned about errors, faults, and sins, life-dominating sin, so that we might repent, so that we might come back and worship God rightly. Psychology, on the other hand, would just want to remove that responsibility from you and deem you innocent already without making any further action. In fact, they do so. Here's one example. Did you know now, from the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual of Psychology, they actually call it the Bible of Psychology, interestingly. Now there's a term there that actually deems your road rage a disorder. You get mad on the 84 out here. Somebody cuts you off. I don't know, did I point in the right direction? Um, somebody cuts you off on the highway you get mad and throw a, a, a temper tantrum, pull them over, knock out their window, it's now called a disorder. It's listed in the DSM-5 as intermittent explosive disorder. And now they deem it to have pathology, meaning they can give you the right medication for it. Right? I am here to tell you the Bible has a lot to say about anger and bitterness and the worship and desires of our soul and that we should live in a right response to God and worship God rightly even when somebody cuts us off on the highway. So God's word is correct, corrects our heart, our hearts of worship. If anger is your thing, Allowing God to recalibrate your heart. Consider what you might have at the bottom of, at the core of your heart that drives that anger. Could it possibly be something like control? Like you would want to control how that other person responds to you or acts, you, acts to, towards you or treats you. In other words, you want to control that they never, ever think about ever, ever cutting you off again, right? Uh, Whatever it might be, how might you control whatever is happening to you? Two questions that might help in this way. Ask yourself, what am I getting that I don't want? That'll lead you to what you might want to control. Or, what am I not getting that I want? Very simple questions, but they lead to heart desires of what you might want to control. Well, first we... Uh, we're inviting change, first of all. Most, most importantly, we're inviting Christ to change our hearts. So we need to be praying that God uses his word to change our heart motives. Uh, we've seen now in this psalm that uh, our worship is transformed not only by worshiping him because he is creator and transcends the universe, but secondly, that he, uh, he is worthy of our worship because, he, he, because of his transforming word, his transforming truth. His sufficient word 
is worthy of us worshiping him. Thirdly, and I'll have to go quicker here, point number three, he is worthy because he transfers souls. He transfers souls, transfers worship. Verses 10 to 14. Don't miss this final section. If you've cut out before this, this is very important because David now gives his personal response to what we had just looked at in the priority, the preeminence of the Word of God. Now it's his personal response. He is now giving his personal response more to be desired. He's talking about desires here, guys and gals. More to be desired are they than gold, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. That's no small, that's no small phrase, great reward. We then have salvation, refreshment, reconciliation in our soul if we keep what God has given us in his word. Let me give you four quick points. This could be a sermon in itself at the very end here, but I just want to give you the points and let you chew on them uh, without further explanation from me. Four different ways that we should respond like David responds here at the end of this passage. First and foremost, we must be humble. We see that David was humble. He gave himself uh, to desiring to word of the, the word of God, surrendering his desires, his heart and mind to, to Yahweh, the Lord. Uh, you could see it similarly in Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, we, we all desire to live a pure and cleansed life. A, living a, a pure and cleansed uh, soul response to God. Um, but honey is the sweetest thing, and gold is a precious, most precious thing. But the word of God must be more, uh, more precious and sweeter than the sweetest thing in your life, than the most precious thing in your life. Make God's word your treasure, and make worshiping him your soul resolve. Secondly, not only must we humble ourselves to be taught and uh, according to God's word, respond according to God's word in worship. But secondly, we see here that David, uh, we, from David, we must also be free of pursuing other desires. So we are not to desire anything more other than God's word. We're not to pursue worldly wisdom. We're not to desire honey or gold uh, above anything else for our soul as the great reward right at the end of that uh, section. We come under his control and pursue him as the sweetest and the most precious thing in our hearts. Thirdly, we can see that we must be filled with discernment. Discernment. So we are discerning the errors, the hidden sin, presumptuous sin, life-dominating sin. This is our greatest reward. And this, my friends, this is what will count us blameless at the end. So David declares himself to be blameless. He is blameless. The end of verse uh, 13 there. Then I shall be blameless and innocent. You know psychology's whole agenda is to remove blame from us with the, with the, the titles and, and the, the names that they, or the labels that they are giving. 
It's to remove blame. It's to, to make or declare innocence. Well, we know the scriptures declare us innocent if we respond in rightly, in right ways to, to God and worship him rightly. Fourthly, we must be filled with devotion. So here, let my words, my mouth, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Are you devoted to worship Christ? To do, to, devoted to worship and honor God with your whole life, all your desires, everything that you are. Put your hope and trust in him even when it's hard. The greatest transformation in the universe, and, and this whole universe was designed to, to this pinnacle moment, the greatest transformation in the universe is that our soul is transferred from darkness to light, that we might transfer from false worship to true worship of our Savior. Well, this is truly, I'm running out of time, this is truly what we desire to do as missionaries, proclaiming the gospel to those who are open atheists, to those who are uh, desiring to avoid God at all costs. We desire to go and share the gospel, the word of God. Missions and all ministry is a proclamation, not simply just living in front of people. We must share God's word with them so that they might know how they should respond in their worship, in their desire for for God, uh, to worship God. So that's our desire that uh, we would be used of God in Germany, in, in Germany and throughout Europe uh, for his glory and his name's sake. Let's uh, close our time out in prayer. Father, thank you so much for uh, this hour, this morning, that we could worship together. What a joy it is to sing songs together.